Well, it's a joy to be with you again. For those of you that have not yet met me, my name is Jordan, and I'm fairly new here. <laughs> so if you have not met me, please introduce yourself uh, to me afterwards. I would love to get to know you. Attempt to remember your name next week and uh, have the privilege of hearing your story. A couple weeks ago, when we were first introduced to the congregation, Susie and I, uh, Mike was preaching, and he had this wonderful line at the very end of his sermon. He said, it is Jesus who binds us together, and it is Jesus who leads us into new seasons of life together. And I thought that just captured it at its simplest form. Those have kind of been the two things that I've been praying in these early weeks as your new pastor, as your new rector, is simply that Jesus would bind our hearts together. We have different stories, different personalities. We've been a part of different communities, but now we're here to do life together and to worship and serve the Lord together. Lord, would you bind our hearts together? And the other thing is that the Lord would lead us and he would guide us and he would set the pace for what this new season looks like for us. Lord, would you bind us together, but Lord, would you guide us as well? Show us what we are meant to be on about. Show us who we are and who you want us to become. Lord, guide us. And so the reason why for the next kind of two or three months, the rest of ordinary time, leading up to Christ the King Sunday, which is the culmination of ordinary time, where we proclaim that Christ is King over all creation, over every area of our lives, um, we're just going to be looking at different vignettes from the Gospel of John, different encounters that Jesus has with particular people. And we're going to be asking, Lord, would you encounter us through these? Would you bind us together? Would you guide us? Last Sunday, we encountered Jesus, the host. He was preparing breakfast for his disciples on the beach. This Sunday, we go back into the gospel in chapter 2, and we encounter Jesus as the wedding guest, attending a wedding reception. Last Sunday, we encountered a Jesus who was going about the work of restoration and ordination. This week, we encounter a Jesus who's going about the work of restoration. Jesus turns water into wine. And many of you know that in the Old Testament, wine is a symbol of joy and gladness, of abundance, of blessing, of life. And so the prophets, when they say the Messiah is coming, one of the images that they use is of the mountains dripping with wine. In John chapter 2, Jesus is at a wedding and he turns water into wine. And John is really careful to tell us that this is the first of Jesus' signs. It's the first of his miracles. Now, that word first, RK, it means beginning. It's the same word that John used in chapter 1, verse 1, where he said, in the beginning was the word, and the word was God. And you know that that in the beginning, John is referencing back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's a beginning that means not just first in order of time, but it means archetypal, foundational, sets the tone for everything that follows. It's in this sense that the miracle at the wedding is the first. It's a paradigmatic window into what Jesus' ministry is going to be all about and what it continues to be about for us. Why? Why water into wine? 
because it's a miracle of change and transformation. It's, it's so simple, it's almost not worth saying. But we need to recover how important it is. It's a miracle of change and transformation. And it's not just any wine that Jesus creates. It's the best wine. It's the finest wine. See, what we see here is that in this little episode, we are seeing an image that Jesus, when he comes into the world, he is going to bring transformation in the world. When he comes into our lives, he is going to bring transformation into our lives. And John emphasizes this in a number of ways. Another way that he does this is by keeping close track of time in chapters 1 and 2. So if you read through chapter 1 and 2 again, you'll notice the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And then John starts keeping track of time. He says, on this day, Jesus did this. On the next day, Jesus did this. On the next day, Jesus did this. And then Jesus stayed here until nighttime. And then Jesus, on the third day, he was at the wedding. What is John doing? He is counting a week's worth of time to mirror Genesis chapter 1, the first week of creation, he is mirroring the next week of new creation, which is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. Jesus' ministry is bringing about new creation in the world. Jesus' ministry is bringing new creation into our lives. And the wedding miracle happens on the seventh day of the week. In this sign, Jesus invites us to consider the nature of the change and transformation that he is bringing out in the world. And there's two surprises in our passage that kind of point us to the nature of this change and transformation. The first surprise occurs in Jesus' response to Mary. Did you catch that? Verses 1 through 4. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. You get the sense that Jesus' mother was the honored guest there, and Jesus just got to tag along. When the wine came out, ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine, which is a horrible thing to have at a wedding. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is not Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I don't know about you, but this really shocks me when I, when I see Jesus' response here. And, and to be honest with you, I don't really know what to make of it. I mean, you can read as many different interpretations as possible as how to take Jesus' words here. They don't necessarily have to be rude and abrasive. Jesus addresses Mary from the cross as woman when he is making provision for her who will take care of her after he dies. So it's not necessarily abrasive, but it's definitely firm and maybe even stern. So what is Jesus doing here? It seems that at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus is trying to make a point, a point that Mary, he thinks, clearly needs to pick up on. And it's that Jesus is not the servant of any human agenda. And he has not come merely to meet people's needs even if it's as dire as not having wine at a wedding. You see, this happens throughout the Gospels. Somebody comes up to Jesus in, in desperation and says, Jesus, I need help. And sometimes Jesus basically denies the request initially. In the end, Jesus ends up meeting their needs in the way that they had desired, but on his own terms and in his own timing. 
A great example of this is Lazarus in John chapter 11. Mary and Martha go up to Jesus, and it says specifically that Jesus loved Lazarus. He was his friend. And they go up to him and say, he's ill. He needs help. And what does Jesus do? He waits a couple days till he goes to visit him. And by the time he shows up, he's died. And yet Jesus raises the dead. I think we're something, seeing something similar at work in his response to Mary. Jesus, yes, he's come to meet humanity's needs. Yes, he's come to bring personal transformation, to bring social transformation, to bring historical transformation, new creation. But, and this is something we need to hear, Jesus does it on his own terms. He does it in his own way. And he does it at his own pace. I don't know about you, but I find this really difficult. <laughs> I mean, really difficult. A number of months ago, Susie and I were, we were in a season of, of concentrated discernment. We had a big decision to make in our lives. And it had implications not just for us, but for our children and their futures, for our families, for our friends, for our church communities. And I found myself praying, Lord, give me clarity. Just tell me what to do, please. Show me the way to go. No clarity. As there was no clarity, for me, there was more anxiety. Lord, please, show me the way to go. Show me what to do. This is serious. And there was one moment when Susie was out, I think, somewhere with her friends, and the kids were asleep, and I just had the sense that Jesus was asking me a really simple question. He was finally going to speak to me. Jordan, what are you so afraid of? It was a simple question, but it was a piercing question. It got right to the core of things. See, I wanted clarity. I wanted an answer. And he wanted to do something much deeper in me. He wanted to ask me, what are you afraid of? And if you've ever asked yourself that question, you know stuff starts bubbling to the surface. And the Lord wants to do work in you over it. In the end, Jesus did guide me. But he had a deeper work to do first. You see, Jesus always meets our deepest needs. But the way in which he does it, and the pace at which he does it often cuts against the grain of our kind of dreams and hopes and agendas. Because Jesus is about the slow work of transformation, not giving you a quick fix to a problem. And it's in the slowness that we discover that we really get to know who he is, that we really become acquainted with the depths of his character and goodness. John tells us that this miracle is a sign of Jesus' glory, the visible revelation of God's character, the magnificence of his beauty. Glory is what we would see if we could see visibly the very face of God. Jesus says to Mary, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And if you've ever read the Gospel of John, you know the hour is the hour, the moment, where we will see God's glory on full display in Jesus' life. And the hour is a proleptic reference to the cross. It's in that sacrificial and in that bloody and in that selfless gift of love on the cross that God's glory and the depths of his character shines most brightly through the life and person of Jesus Christ. My hour has not yet come. And so the first surprise of our passage, I think, is 
simply Jesus' response to Mary. And it presents us with this gentle yet probing question. Am I trying to get Jesus to serve my agenda and my dreams? Or am I sensitive and submissive to his? It's an important question. It's important for pastoral ministry, important for marriage, important for raising children, important for vocational discernment, it's important for retirement, it's important for spiritual formation. Am I trying to get Jesus to serve my agenda and dreams, or am I sensitive and submissive to his? The first surprise is Jesus' response to Mary. And the second, response, the second surprise is the master's response to wine. Verses 6 through 10. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So that makes up, what, 150 gallons? Jesus said to the servants, fill the, water, the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants that drew the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have had plenty to drink, then the poor wine. But you, you can note the sense that he thinks he's been very cheeky, this bride, this groom. But you, You've kept the good wine till now. Did you hear the tone of the master's voice? I think it was a tone of surprise, of even bewilderment, of absolute delight, even being to the point of being giddy. Like, this, this just doesn't happen. The best wine doesn't come last. And so with his voice, joy becomes the dominant note of the scene. And he's a wedding caterer. The master of the feast, I mean, this is probably his vocation. He's been to lots of weddings, and he knows how these things go, and he runs them. He's seen it all, and he's heard it all. Not much surprises him anymore at weddings. Does this remind you of anybody in our culture? Seen it all and heard it all, maybe even at church, but longing for something much deeper and new. You see, the caterer knows all about food and wine. He's tasted it all. And his job is to keep things going in the wedding in kind of an inconspicuous manner. Yet when he tastes this wine, it's like he can't help himself. He's got to go. He's got to find the groom who's probably busy talking to many other people. And he's got to say, everyone, everyone does the best wine first. Nobody does this. Notice that what astonishes the master is the timing of it. Jesus is reversing the normal order of things. The normal order of things run from fullness to lack. The normal order of things run from life to death, from youth to age, from abundance to scarcity. But in Christ, it's the opposite order of things. It runs from death to life, from scarcity to abundance. And it's a life an unparalleled quality. I don't know about you, but I really enjoy red wine. Uh, my mother uh, is Italian, and my parents love the Napa Valley. We grew up there. And so when I finally f submitted my 
my thesis a couple months ago. Susie and I had this bottle of wine that my parents had given us. It was a 2004 silver oak. I don't know if that means anything to you. Didn't mean much to me until I drank it. And so Susie and I opened it up, and we were sipping it. It was one of those things where I've tasted good wine before, and it's great. But when we tasted this, I mean, all I could talk about to Susie for the next couple hours was how good it tasted. It was amazing. It's that sense of being surprised by joy. See, Jesus' transforming work in our lives gives life and gives joy that is surprising in its quality. It's more than just purification and forgiveness of sins. It's more than just assurance that we will be in the promised land, we will go to heaven. It's more than just strength in our weakness. It's more than just guidance in our struggles. It's eternal life. It's relational life. It's deep, abiding, lasting joy. It's joyful, peaceful, missional life. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit life. And Jesus gives it an extreme excess. Notice, Jesus doesn't just provide the normal wine, he provides the best wine. And he doesn't just kind of provide a few bottles of it, he provides 150 gallons of it. Like who at the end of a wedding reception is going to be able to drink 150 gallons? It's the extravagance of the gift that is almost overwhelming. It's as if Jesus is saying that there will be no shortage of life for my disciples. Lavish, more than is needed, abundant and full. The word became flesh. He dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Everyone serves the good wine first. When people have drunk it freely, then the poor wine. But you, Jesus, you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus changes water into wine, and it's a sign of the quality and the extravagance of his transforming work in our lives. After submitting my thesis, I mentioned a couple Moments ago, people have often asked me, you studied for three years, like what, distill it down to like a couple sentences. What did you learn? <laughs> Which is always a great question. <laughs> it's a fair question though, but it's one I have an impossible time answering. But as I've been asked that over and over again, I find myself just with two words coming to mind. I can't get much beyond two words and it's simply abundance and fullness, abundance, and fullness. Just dwell on those words for a moment. Full of grace and truth. Grace upon grace. No shortage, no lack. There's no scarcity here. It's not a zero-sum game. The Father's life is abundant without lack. Jesus' ministry is gracious without reserve. The Holy Spirit's presence far exceeds any of our needs. I want to end with a prayer from Dallas Willard in his book, Life Without Lack. 
Gracious Lord, help us to see and understand with the eyes of faith and the mind you've given us, your magnificence, your glory, self-sufficient being, and the greatness of your kingdom into which we are invited. May we grasp the significance of the words, in him, in his abundance, we live and move and have our being. And may we know that in you there simply is no lack. Bring us, Lord, to the place of peace where we no longer feel the need to defend ourselves, where we no longer feel the need to worry about who's going to take care of us, where we no longer feel the need to worry about recognition, getting our own way, or making sure things turn out right. Lord, free us through the knowledge that because you are working with us, working in our lives, we have everything we need. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.